Well, hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, tonight, my co-host and I, we're going to offer you an invitation, as it were, to join us. We'll have some vintage wine. We'll taste some delicious meats. That's not a euphemism. Uh, some pastries. We'll light a red lantern and then fill your toasting cup with cyanide, and we'll all wave bye-bye to all of that grief and trauma. Into the void, I say. Can't wait. Sound exciting? Good. The Invitation is the film that we will be discussing tonight, Karen Kusama's 2015 American horror film. And this movie follows the story of Will, who was once in a loving relationship with a woman named Eden, who is now his ex-wife. And after a freak tragedy that took their son, uh, Eden disappeared. And then two years later, out of the blue, she returns with a new husband, and as a completely different person, eerily changed and eager to reunite with her ex and the close group of friends that they all left behind after the tragedy. Uh, and over the course of a dinner party in the house that was once his, Will is gripped with mounting evidence that Eden, her husband David, and a couple of new friends that they've invited over uh, have a mysterious and terrifying agenda for the dinner party. And, spoiler alert, surprise, surprise, he's right. Although the film sort of makes you wonder for a little while at first, uh, it turns out that Eden and David have spent the last two years in Mexico as part of a cult, a cult whose philosophy teaches that negative emotions like pain and grief are merely chemical reactions in the brain that are not necessary for living. And by accepting the invitation, all of those negative emotions can disappear. So the cult sees death as a mercy and a relief from pain and a communion once more with those that you have lost. And as a result of this philosophy, Eden and David and friends try to poison all of the party guests uh, with the last toast, which goes south due to Will's skepticism and paranoia. And eventually the whole thing turns into a bloodbath with people being shot, stabbed, and hunted around the home. Um, so this film was my selection tonight, and I chose it because, well, one, it's a deeply personal film to me, one that speaks to the specter of, of grief and trauma, uh, how one approaches something traumatic, something like losing a child. And I, I personally have not lost a child, but at a young age, I, I lost a father to a drunk driving accident, a best friend to a drug overdose, uh, an aunt to a very brutal form of cancer. And I... I basically lived a good amount of my life up until I was about 17 at a point where grief and trauma were very real staples of my existence. And in many ways, they sort of shaped who I am today. Um, but to be like, just in thinking about that, to be shaped by trauma assumes that you first have acknowledged it and to some extent embraced it as a part of your reality. And I think this film provides us with two people, Will and Eden, who go very separate ways as it relates to how they handle the death of their son. Um, Eden can't help but smother the pain. And we see this through her attempted suicide in a flashback. And really, we see it just through the very existence of the dinner party, which is just a more pomp and circumstance form of suicide. Um, Eden's grief in this movie is so great that she has to override it she has to override the trauma by only looking forward, by embracing the invitation, instead of embracing the grief, sort of the past grief as an inevitable part of her continued existence. And Will, on the other hand, has sort of gone the opposite direction. Like he's largely frozen by the trauma. He tells his girlfriend Kira, for example, that he's sort of in this mechanical kind of existence and he's basically just waiting to die, right, after the death of his son. Um, he can't get past what happened and 
there are pretty large indicators that this is affecting his future and his relationship with Kira. So we have this traumatic experience in the center and then two very opposing and ultimately negative ways of handling it. And this is all explored through what I think is some of the most intense and socially awkward conversations like I've ever seen in a movie. Um, Kusama, in my mind, does an amazing job of constructing a very contained universe within this, this house where everything takes place, where anxious and painful thoughts can be communicated and challenged, and where really where social mores lead to death. Right? Like it's very similar to creep in some ways. Um, we see we, we see with the cult, uh, the uh, the we see with the cult recruitment video that David plays, we see this through Pruitt's story about accidentally killing his wife. Like there are certain scenes in this movie that feel like awkward scenes, almost as awkward as Michael Scott from the office, right? Like but but in a way more, heavy and serious way, right? Like the same level of social unease, but in a much more somber and anxious context. This movie has to create a way for people to stay at the party, despite all of the weirdness and awkwardness going on. And I think the film did a, a decent job at that. Um, Will's skepticism that something is awry at the dinner party is nicely counterbalanced by his anxiety of being back at his old home for the first time in a couple of years, right? And so this is transposed onto the dinner guests thinking that Will is, is just losing his shit, right? The movie initially makes you wonder if this is just Will going mad or if there really is some sinister plan for the dinner party. Um, that said, uh, one of the guests actually does find all this too much and, and demands to leave, right? So in my mind, this is all very reasonable. There's, there's reasons to stay, reasons to leave, and ultimately reasons to doubt Will's skepticism. So if I could summarize, like, I, I'm very long-winded, but if I could summarize why I selected this movie, it would be that, like all of my favorite horror movies, it deals with what I think is a fundamental condition of the human experience, one that I think we actually have a massive problem with here in our culture, and that's pain. Like, how to handle pain and grief and sorrow. This film is a study, I think, on the life-affirming and life-denying ways of handling emotional and psychological pain. And that's such an important question today because I, I, I feel like at every turn, our culture offers us like little mini invitations, little ways to dull and smother or kill our various pains and traumas. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, the same place where this movie takes place. Um, and I've literally heard people say that things like sorrow and grief are simply mindsets that can be overcome. Like I, I know life coaches who teach uh, that overcoming psychological grief is a matter of sheer volition and will, that you can detox negative emotions and thoughts by like drinking kale shakes and doing yoga and going a soul cycle for fuck's sake. And that's no different than the invitation. It's an attempt at self-trickery, you know, albeit with much less serious consequences. And it, it devalues pain and sorrow and trauma as items not worthy of exploration. It, it teaches people that there's no value or legitimacy in suffering. And I, I think that that's wrong. Uh, it teaches that grief can be relegated to a mere belief that can be turned on or off. And the fact that people think that is a reflection of the privilege of our modern ethos. Um, it's a reflection, I think, of our collective narcissism that we can treat it so cheaply as a thing. And I believe this is why Kusama places the movie in Hollywood Hills.
right? Like, to me, that's on purpose. It seems like that has to be on purpose. I mean, think of the privilege it takes to actually believe that you can just disregard grief. Um, I mean, think about that. Who could be so lucky? You know, the irony is that looking at pain that way actually has the net result of adding to our anxieties. It adds to it. It doesn't help it because if, if you really think that grief and sorrow can be overcome by mere choice, then when grief shows up again, it's now a matter of failure on your part. It's, you know, you didn't believe hard enough. You did something wrong. You must have missed something. So it transposes the externality of grief onto an internal failure on your part. And that makes things worse. <laughs> and you see the final result of this at the end of the movie, right? When Eden is dying in the backyard, there's this flood, this torrent of sorrow that comes rushing out of her as Will holds her. She apologizes for all of her actions. She apologizes really for her last act on earth. And that's because she, that's because she recognizes that in the end, you know, no amount of barbiturates, no amount of guru, hypnotic, trans, meditative bullshit is ever going to dull the pain of losing a child. And I think, you know, holding Eden in his arms and seeing just how deep the pain went with her, uh, that she would go this far to do something like this to numb it, I think that became sort of the catalyst for Will to own his own grief, um, to carry it with him, uh, finally carry it with him and not keep it locked away in the past, right? I'd like to believe that that Will sees this and changes at the end of the movie, and I really hope that's the intention of Kusama because I think, I think that's a powerful lesson. So... Uh, those are my thoughts. <laughs> I apologize for taking so long with this intro. I, I know I've I've hit on like 500 different topics that we could probably jump into. So I'll start by just sort of asking that same old question I always ask after giving you a billion reasons to, to a billion different thoughts to jump in on. Um, what did you guys think generally about the movie? Um, and I just want to say, if you didn't like it, when we finally do meet up in person, you may want to check your toasting glass. So just going to throw that out there as a as a mild veiled threat. Uh, what did you guys think of the invitation? So I know that um, we covered this ironically on April Fool's Day, but I think your description of everything about how it's unhealthy to kind of like push down trauma and sadness and grief and all of that and how it sort of comes back in incredibly negative ways is reflected quite a bit. And I, I'm being completely serious here in Inside Out. So maybe that even uh, lends us a little bit more support for the thesis. That is probably, in fact, a horror film. I'm not sure. But it's an important message, right? It's an incredibly important message. And so just beyond watching a good movie aimed at whatever audience, I think it's great that directors and artists are putting that forward. Um, it's something that we don't value nearly enough. I, I totally agree with your assessment on that, Noah. Um, it's something we try to shy away from. We sort of pathologically try to run away from anything that seems negative, anything that seems too serious, anything we deem as awkward, socially speaking, especially. Um, and that can really just sort of damage us in ways that we don't really expect until they come up in sort of like new creative, different sorts of disruptions in our lives. And for some people that might end up being seeking out someone that they don't fully understand that might seek to take advantage of them and so on and so forth. Um, but it is, it's an incredibly important message. Um, and one that I think really, really does shine through quite powerfully in this film. The reason why this kind of a film really fucks with me is because when we get together as a group, right? And you haven't seen each other in a while. It's been awkward that you haven't talked. Something bad has happened and it's been hard to talk about. 
the thing that comes to the surface is you have to be kind of fake. And this is throughout the entire film. This fakey, lovey, happy, everybody knows something's going on. Everybody knows something's off. Everybody knows something is complicated. And yet they're acting like this is a fun-loving, happy interaction. It's not. It is super duper not. And um, I've been in these situations and I'm always seen as the bitch. Because I don't play that game. I don't do that shit. I don't fake my interactions with people. I'm very much on the nose. I'm very blunt. I'm very honest about like my interactions. So uh, there's times where I could be fakey. Sure, everybody can. We all adjust ourselves based off of certain situations. But I, I couldn't last that long. They lasted for so long with their fake niceties. It's I, it, it just got more and more and more uncomfortable. And... Um, that idea that we need to smile through our uncomfortable situations we're in, the the violations that occur. Um, and you actually see this a lot with the, the gay couple. Um, you see him saying, this is not okay. And his partner's like, um, let's hear him out. And he's like, look, I'm hearing him out and I've heard it and it's fucking bullshit. <laughs> it's just like, no. Um, but you have that partner that's like, hey, let's try to get along. Let's get along with the group. Um, no. And uh, I think that's where this this movie goes to a very uncomfortable place for me. Does that mean it's bad? Hell no. It is exposing a huge part of our, our psyche. We need to be accepted. We need social interactions. Being isolated from the group is a very dangerous, very scary thing. We're always trying to interact in a way that everybody can accept us. And uh, it can lead us down some very dark paths. This is why cults exist. This is why religion exists. This is why uh, certain political groups exist. It's all about acceptance and everybody loving you. Uh, there's actually some people that go around talking about how they became neo-Nazis and how they got out of it. The reason why they got into it was because they were feeling ostracized and isolated. And eventually, they found people that accepted them. And so they fell into some really horrible behaviors, uh, some violent behaviors, and uh, and then fell out of it when they realized the only reason why they got caught up in it was because they were feeling alone. Uh, we get stuck places when we feel alone. This movie shows how you can be taken advantage of when you feel that isolation and you feel that loneliness. And it makes me super uncomfortable. Um, but I, I think it's meant to. <laughs> super it's not cringe it's like another level of cringe like i can't even explain it it's like exposing a, a thing of humanity we don't like to talk about ever it, trying to be trying to be accepted by your peers uh for for things that are so stupid <laughs> like hey let's play a game hey let's watch a video of someone dying this is great right no it's not uh, I maybe gave you the wrong impression. It's like, <laughs> what the fuck is happening? It's, it is on the level of creep, though. I did equate this to a creep kind of feel. But I think this is like creep times a bunch. <laughs> it's like if creep had a scary baby. I don't know. <laughs> like, this, the child that creep was supposedly going to have, <laughs> this is the baby that would be born of it. I don't know. This um, is Buddy. This is little Buddy. This is Buddy. Yeah. <laughs> it's bath time with Buddy. <laughs> I don't I don't like it. What did he call that bath time? <laughs> Jeez, it was so bad. Yep, tubby time. All tubby right. time. Oh, this is tubby time. 
it made me very uncomfortable. So. Well, it's what cults do, by the way, not tubby time. I don't know what kind of cult does tubby time. There might be some that do tubby time, but cults make you, there are, it's, it's a, it is a aspect of particular cults to, at a certain point, put you in a place to feel uncomfortable to gauge how you will react. Um, and that is what we see with, I think, the video. And it, it, more than the video, Pruitt's story of his wife. Um, you know, I, so I thought that was very well done. I think that's accurate, um, an accurate depiction of how cults inter interact with people who are coming in to hear about the things they have to sell. Did we fall into the cult is the question because they made us super uncomfortable throughout the whole film. Was that part of the writing? Were they trying to get us to that uncomfortable place? Because I was actually going to make note of that, that cults do try to gauge you by throwing this shit at you. And then going like, oh, I get you, I got you, do, 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 you know, gun fingers. Um, is that part of what they're trying to point out, though? They're going to gauge our discomfort so that when you do outburst and then you do go, hey, no, enough is enough. Oh, Choi's alive. He's alive. What? You are overreacting. Maybe so, it's you. <laughs> yeah. Like so so I, I actually I actually don't think they did. And here's why. Because ultimately their plan is in a few hours, everyone's going to be dead. So I think it was, the cult was that evening after, I think a kind of, I think it was for themselves. I think it was a kind of honesty to themselves about what's about to happen. And I, I don't think it was anything to, like, I don't think it was to get them in anything necessarily because in a few hours they're gone. I think it was, I, I think it may have been something for themselves as a way, as a cathartic way of because what does David say? Because you asked, I guess I'll show this video. I think for them, it made them feel more comfortable as a way of catharsis during a night where they know not only are their friends going to die, but they're going to die also, I think. Right. I tend to agree with that, Noah. I think that uh, I, you know, one of the, I want to spend some time sort of examining the ideas of this cult and, and also pick up on, I took notes while everybody was talking so that uh, I could kind of go back to some some previous points instead of kind of interrupting uh, with what you guys were saying and, and, and spending some time sort of examining this cult, their, their point of view is relatively pedestrian. Their point of view is, is not too far away from Christianity. And that is that after you die, you will go to a better place and that better place will have all of your friends there. And I don't know, I guess you could play, you know, take a harp lesson or something. Um, there's there's an, a, a much better afterlife where all the pain and the grief and the sadness and all the shit is gone. And we could sort of talk about that, but, uh, and, and sort of the ethics and philosophy of whether or not that is in fact a desirable outcome like would we actually want to live in the christian conception of heaven or this cult's conception of heaven um but it's that is that is incidental what is most what we see most uh, uh vividly in this cult is that when you die you will not be alone you will feel loved your friends and family will be around with you. They will be breathing in your essence as you exhale it. Uh, so it's more about like really good hospice care than anything else. And so I think that uh, when when we come to the book, I mean, right now we're sort of examining what the movie's saying and we're trying to sort of suss out its themes. But when we come to a value judgment of the film, I'm I. I I didn't respond as 
uh, as strongly to this film as as I think all of my colleagues did. And that's because I didn't find anything new or interesting about the cult. I didn't find anything about the cult that wasn't written about in popular conceptions of Christianity um, or popular conceptions of most religions, in fact. And so as when I examined the cult, I, w I didn't find any sort of attraction to it beyond something that a priest would tell me or maybe even a rabbi or other uh, other religious leaders. So it wasn't as though this 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 uh, this cult had anything original to say about it. Uh, about um, death and what happens to you after you die. And so I didn't really get their, I mean, this this sounds a little weird, but I didn't get their marketing campaign. Um, that said, I think that we can kind of step back and imagine, or step back and examine why uh, a world that's free from pain is so attractive. Why it is, in fact, not just in this cult that, that, the cult's lack of originality may not be an accident on the part of the movie. In fact, that the movie is deliberately saying that all of these sort of popular conceptions of religion and popular conceptions of the afterlife are just as pedestrian and as cult-like as the cult that's that's uh, um, portrayed in this film. So I want to I want to pause there. And, and give you guys sort of a chance to respond to to that argument before I go on to some of the other points that you that you guys brought up a little bit earlier. I think I, I agree with your assessment of the cult, right? Like it didn't it didn't really shine through as being necessarily the focal point, and, and that might seem a little bit strange to say. Um, it was definitely a foundational part of the plot and what carried the story forward um, for me and my perception. But I don't think it was it was really ever highlighted as kind of like the the crux of the film, right? I mean, they definitely could have done a lot more to explore the the methods, the exact ideologies, et cetera, et cetera. We really only ever get a glimpse of the bits and pieces. And I think that's especially important because we never exactly see what the rationale is for these people being radicalized to the point where they and many others apparently on that same Hollywood hillside decided to go out and select, in their words, a group of friends to bring over and take with them. I really kind of wish we had seen some of that, but again, like I don't necessarily think that was the, the biggest point. What really stood out for me is that the, the cult was only important in so much as that it showed you how desperate Eden was um, and how desperate, I guess, like her new husband was. What's his name? David? Um, David, yes. David? Okay, yeah. Essentially, like how desperate they were to try and stop hurting. And it's, I, I don't even think it's fair to say it's just about a world without pain and a world without suffering. Because again, that's a fairly bland kind of thing that like sounds good to everybody, but it's it's deeper than that, right? It's like these people are suffering so deeply that they just want to get away from that. They just want it to stop. You know what I mean? Um, and there's a really good scene where they're they're talking about that, like toward the end, whenever all the, the violence and stuff is broken out, where they're having that scene together and they're talking about this is the last step. We're almost there. Kind of like that encouragement piece. Yes, this is difficult, but, you know, we can be rid of all of this. Um, and that's uh, kind of goes in line, of course, with the, the the Eden and Will scene, whenever he finally sees that honesty from her and that she is just in such deep suffering that she is willing to do anything to get rid of that. And so I think that was kind of you know, the, probably the core there is showing the, the length some people will go just to be able to move past 
that and sort of deal with that grief that they have. The the cult is almost sort of um, kind of like a like almost almost incidental, really, I think, to that story. Yeah, I think right. that when it comes to uh, what the cult is representing, we have four main characters for this. We have the enforcer, we have the sycophant, and we have the two that got brainwashed by it. And then we have whatever they're trying to sell us. It doesn't matter what they're trying to sell us. What we have is an enforcer, a sycophant, and the brainwashed. And they're trying to bring their friends in. And here's the thing. When we look at what this is really based off of, which I they mentioned it explicitly multiple times in the in the film, it's Mansony. It's Charles Manson the family shit. Um, it doesn't have to make sense. It has to feel good for them. And the way to make it feel good for them is to expose their uh, places where they're fe feeling vulnerable and afraid and to make that go away through either sex or desires or drugs or whatever the fuck. Uh, even replacing drugs with something else is another way of, of enforcing this. Making people feel like you've created some kind of miracle that never happened. One thing that we know from all the cults that have ever existed when we talk to people who've fallen in with the cults, they've said they've seen uh, stuff that couldn't possibly happen with a regular man. They've done a miracle, something that nobody else could do. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, because if you can get people to believe that, then they're going to fall in line. Now, this movie goes on another level that no cult movie has ever done. It's not just that a couple of people have fallen for this. The entire neighborhood has fallen for this. I mean, when we get to the end, everyone has fallen in with one of these kinds of parties. This isn't just a regular cult. This is something that they have decided to an attack at least an entire region with. Uh, a cult of personality, a, a, a brainwashed viewpoint. Uh, let's just eradicate all of ourselves. The only way to stop our pain is for us all to just die. And that is a wild ride, right? Like the, the idea that this cult is trying to sell us is the only way to feel better is for us all just to die. I mean, this is Thanos shit. <laughs> like you know well i yeah i mean it's it's almost thanos shit like than, this isn't a marvel podcast so i won't go i think their motivations are slightly different uh i think there's a selfish motivation on, on the part of the cult members who don't want to die alone they want to die with with their loved ones and so they take unconsenting unwilling people whom they love lure them into this place and force them to die with them. And that's, I, I mean, Thanos is bad, but I, that's almost worse. Um, and if this was a Marvel podcast, we'll get into the differences between their motivations, but uh, sadly, no. Um, but I, I want to go back to something you said, Shayra. You, you, I think you're being kind to David when you call him the brainwashed, because I think that's what you were... Uh, talking about it. the sycophant was Sadie, the enforcer was Pruitt, and then the two brainwashed were Eden and David. I think David is actually he's got shades of enforcer in him as well, and so to some degree does Eden. But I, I think that sort of strips him of some of the agency and the guilt that he may have, uh, the the blame that may be due to him. Um, so I yeah I I like that idea that 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 um. 
paradigm that you've set up for us and enforcer a sycophant and and the brainwashed but um i'd like to also sort of shove david into an enforcer role there yeah but the only problem is david can't be an enforcer because he actually showed emotion about the deaths of people and having to shoot people that he didn't even actually get as close with as uh you know someone like eden was so i do believe he was brainwashed and i believe that because he was an addict a drug addict that had major issues and was trying to show that he had turned over a new leaf i think he was much more susceptible to trying to take on a leadership role but just because someone is a leader does not mean that they're an enforcer because let's face it there are some people that act as leader when they know they probably are not so much a leader you 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 put on a persona, right? And I think he was putting on a persona to try to feel good about himself. I think he was feeling bad about his past and bad about what he had made decisions on in his past. So uh, I do think he was definitely part of the brainwashed. He's definitely more uh, of an asshole, I guess, than Eden um, in that he seemed to believe it more hardcore and didn't question it as much. Um, to uh, to piggyback on your point, Shara, we see David give over to Pruitt quite a few times in this movie to go to Pruitt for help, um, not only in the scene where he shoots his friends, but, you know, in the scene where he goes outside to interact with those people, whoever they are, who seemingly were probably people from the next door who were freaking out about something going on over there. And David comes back in and says, oh, it's probably just people looking for a party, right? Like we see Pruitt helping David quite a bit. In this, So I think those roles are very distinguished in the movie, although I do agree with Jim, there is some overlap. David does try to be a kind of enforcer and he fails at it, which is the whole reason Pruitt was there. That was the whole reason he was there. To piggyback on something Ben said that I think is very important early on, you know, um, this, the, the, it's, the theological apparatus of this cult is incidental in light of the fact that they hone in on in pinpoint scoped in fucking capacity to the idea of grief. And not only is this seen in the end, this is seen in the very first scene of the movie. How many times have we talked about animals dying by being hit by a car in the beginning? Get out, train to Busan. This one I think has a very different motivation for it being in the movie. Um, one that has to do specifically with the cult. So the coyote, I think is a metaphor, the coyote being hit by Will at the beginning of this movie is a metaphor for ending pain and trauma. That's a very heavy handed way to look at it. I mean, having to put it down as it were, Will kills the coyote because it was in pain and he was ending its suffering. He didn't want it to suffer if it didn't have to. So the movie starts by teasing you, the viewer, by getting you ready and prepared for the idea that there are instances when the option of death is better than an existence of suffering, right? It gets you ready for this. And that is, I think, the centerpiece of this cult. I, I, I And to the extent that it overlaps with modern theological views within Christianity or Islam and other monotheistic Western religions, to me, that's... Th the lack of, of uh, novelty by that is more of an indictment of those religions than it is an indictment of this film and the cult therein. You know, um, that's my thought. Sure, uh, but I, I was gonna jump off onto that, onto a, like we started this, this podcast with a couple comparisons. I mean, Ben uh, talked about uh, our, our 
ironic Inside Out podcast. And I've got a few other comps that are uh, that I wrote down, comparison films uh, that I've written down here. And that is we talked a lot about falling into the cult. I mean, Shaver, I think you pointed that out as one of the reasons why you like this film, that it shows how people can fall into this thing. Um, I think that's done so much better in Midsummer, And I think that Midsummer is able to create a cult that is original and weird and interesting, but has comparisons to some religions. And, and so I, I sort of wanted a little bit more Midsummer out of the cult that was, uh, uh, portrayed here in the invitation. Um, that's not to say that that's a requirement of the film. I think that you can look at it as we both did, Noah, you and I, um, even in my my sort of condemnation of the film, we said, well, maybe it's on on purpose. Maybe it's not an accident that this this cult uh, has similarities to to Western religions. Um, I, 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 think it it were, I think it would take away from the film, don't you, if it gave you more of a broad understanding of the cults and what their beliefs are. I, 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 I mean, it seems to me that by purposefully, it seems Kusama did this purposefully in, in from the, the first scene to the end by honing in on aspects of grief and trauma as the centerpiece of what this cult is after. And at least what they're doing in the course of this evening, that it allowed that those things as issues, grief, trauma, pain, how they're handled to be a the major focus of the entire film. So it's almost like it's almost like instead of shotgunning different pellets of information about this cult, it's a single silver bullet about, you know, what this cult I mean, this is how they end. I mean, it almost doesn't matter what the rest of their theological beliefs were, how you came to the cult even. It's this is so central to their apparatus that this is how they end their existence. This is the centerpiece, you know? So it wouldn't it if, if you had had more, if Kusama had built this world with more of an understanding of how the characters made it into the cult, maybe some of the broad array of their other beliefs, wouldn't that just like make the film gray and less less uh, less powerful to you at all? No, I don't think so, because I think that that would have sort of solved the obvious question that uh, that I had is what is the what is the selling point of the cult? And in fact, when I, I, even the use of the the C word in this movie cult, not the other one, uh, even the use of the word cult in this movie is a trigger warning, at least for me. If I if I walk into a dinner party and I find out that my two hosts are cults, I'm not going to eat at that dinner party anymore. Uh, if I find out that they're cult members, I'm not going to eat at the dinner party anymore because that's, uh, that's, I, you know, especially if I know I'm in a horror movie, uh, parts a joke, but the, uh, the, the point is, is that I think that if I, I, when I watched Midsummer, right, I could understand why Danny would be seduced into that world. Uh, because the world building in that film was so good. So I had a more difficult time connecting with the characters and, and jumping into the, uh, the world that this film created because there wasn't enough, uh, to my taste, there wasn't enough um, 
exploration of the cult. That's that's very interesting. We we look at this in legitimately completely opposite ways because to me, um, it seemed it seemed um, it, I saw it as a reverse. In midsummer, I felt like there was a lot of other things going on, and I I. I would feel more prone to fall victim to the cult and the invitation than I would to Midsummer, and Midsummer may explain the cult more, but that, I feel like that would ruin the invitation. Look, the reason the invitation is so um, concrete and so um, inviting, <laughs> the reason the invitation is so inviting, that's great, Noah, um, is because its central focus seems to be, the film is implying, a way of completely disregarding grief. Now, Christianity has a bazillion other tenets and a, a robust 2,000-year the theological apparatus that relies on, on Jewish traditions. Same could be said for Islam. There's a bunch of other things going on in Western mono, uh, uh, you know, monotheistic uh, religions. So, so it seems to me that with the cult, their philosophy centrally addresses pain through sheer will instead of actually doing the work of like helping someone through it. And that's inviting. I mean, um, and, and if I can just, just, you know, acknowledging pain is, is what I, it, acknowledging pain is recognizing what it is to be human, right? To, to be human is to experience pain and grief. And I think the cult relies on that intuition putting it down or smothering it removes a part of a person's humanity. It's very life-denying, but it's also very powerful. This film is, in many ways, or I should say the cult in this film, in many ways, is a rejection of the concept of amor fati, right? The love of fate. That is a tough concept for people to to invite into their lives, right? The, the, the love of where one is in life, everything that has happened up, up until this point in their lives, good or bad, to get them to where they are, you know, whereas amorphati would be a concept that stresses acceptance of the past and a full embrace of everything that has occurred in it to get you where you are. The lure of the invitation is this very wicked and very destructive kind of denial of it. And I think that's really powerful. Like it kills the past by focusing on a single moment of the future, namely like the drinking of the Kool-Aid moment. And I think, I think while you can say something of the same thing about Christianity, right? Jesus, oh, every tear will be wiped away, right? Death, where is thy sting, right? And while heaven is certainly a huge and central part of all major, you know, monotheistic religions, there is a broad spectrum of other things going on culturally, politically, socially, as it relates to those large religions. Whereas I, th I think this film is focusing centrally on the main part of this cult being a way of getting past grief. That is the main part of this cult. And I think that actually may be novel. Like if that's true, it certainly is something that's, that's novel. That's a, uh, that's a really good, I mean, I take your point. Uh, that's a really good defense of the creative choice to have this be a cult instead of a, a religion um, and to have this be the cult, the way it's portrayed in this film. I, I take your point. That's actually a really good defense that I probably haven't thought about before. I would say that I think the film could probably nail that down a little bit better for me. Um, but that's maybe 
maybe I need to watch it a third time in order to get some of the things that you just explained out of the film. I, you just need to wait for the sequel. The Invitation to Raise the Red Lantern. That's that's all. That's all. That's all. It's an interesting uh, uh, combination of two things. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, I, I just want to throw out there. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so uh, the reason why I differentiate Midsummer and this film so much is that with Midsummer, they're inviting somebody into their culture that has been around for eons. They are practicing something that has been around forever, that has always worked for them, and that has always been a part of what they do. And they believe that they are helping people come into a part of their family and actually being joined to the family. Whereas with this particular story, we have people that are experiencing trauma and grief and joining a death cult. Not just a death cult for themselves, but a death cult for their entire family and friends without their consent. And that is a wildly different kind of a, a religious or culty bend. And I don't even know if we want to call these things cults or religions. I don't know what these things are. Like we have a, a weird culture from another country that has been around forever. And we have a self-help guru who's gone maniacal and crazy i don't know like, it's almost like scientology so yes it, it is yeah that's that's a comp that i thought was thought was uh was being honed in on when when we saw all the red lanterns in hollywood um that's uh, yeah the scientology commission now notice that I, I the thing is is just to clarify i was using midsummer because i thought that that ha did a better job of showing me what it's like to fall into a cult not necessarily to suggest that the the reason that the central points of both films were the same so i i just wanted to sort of clarify that I was talking about Midsummer only in that aspect rather than in sort of a broad uh, understanding of what cults are and cults. So it's a, cults it's actually, it's actually, a, it's actually a very interesting comparison in the sense that in Midsummer the cult appeals to Danny's codependency, which I think is something even more isolated and less fundamental. It's something about Danny. And I think that the invitation is something intrinsic to every human maybe that has ever lived. Like you are going to feel pain and grief and sorrow. Like to be, I'm, I'm very Kierkegaardian in the sense, like to live is to experience pain. It doesn't matter how much money, this is why, I mean, this is often why people with the most money, billionaire sports uh, figures, uh, celebrities kill themselves. It, it, it doesn't fix the fundament, the fundamentality of what it means to be human when, and, and people often with lots of money think it will. They think that this will fix the hole that's there, the grief, the trauma, the pain. And I think part of being human is looking for something to fill that. And in that sense, the centrality of what this cult offers is exceedingly powerful. It may even be more powerful in many ways than some of the major world religions, I think, if in fact I'm right and the centrality of, and the, the film doesn't give you an answer, but if if I'm right and the centrality of this cult is this invitation to, to exercise all of these negative emotions by only looking forward to this moment where it is all going to be gone and you'll you know live communally forever with people who you miss i guess right i, I yeah i think we definitely have to talk about Kierkegaard and existentialism writ large when we uh, discuss this film um i will briefly say that uh Every human who ever lived also wanted a social 
uh, support system. So every we are social animals. So I think that uh, what Midsummer is getting at is not just Danny's specific uh, codependency, but rather the need for a a family. That's uh, fair point. That's fair point. Social uh, thing. Um, yeah. Do do we want to just jump into existentialism now? Because I think I... that that has a lot to say about this movie. I I do want to jump into that. I just want to say I definitely agree with you that I don't think she was necessarily codependent. And I know that that was a thing that we mentioned a lot in our midsummer talk, but I do think it's just human nature. We like to find a a like-minded peer group. That's what we are. We are living in that kind of an entity. We actually find a lot of joy sitting around talking with each other. Even when we disagree, it is an immense amount of uh, like, I'm able to communicate with someone and they're able to absorb what I say and they can agree with me or disagree with me. It feels nice to have these kinds of conversations, even when a disagreement pops up because we respect each other. When that disagreement comes up, we go, Ooh, Hey, <laughs> disagreeing with me. Yeah. We think, yeah we think, it, we think it's sexy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's great. Like we feel good about that. And so uh, finding like-minded peer group is, is great. Um, I will say, I want to jump back into Scientology really quick, and then we can go into Kierkegaard. Um, I've been to a Scientology church. Not sure if any of you guys have. Um, I, I went to one in Austin, and I had my uh, Thetans uh, measured and read. Um, I got to talk to some of the people there. Um, and I do see a lot of correlation. And I think this film is calling out Scientology uh, in a huge way. Um, so one of the things that Scientology is trying to tell you is that we have lived multiple times. Uh, it's kind of like a video game we're living in where these kind of godlike creatures that are in a, stuck in this video game. And uh, because we've lived so many different lives, we've collected this sin, like lumps inside of our souls called thetans. And we need to get them out of ourselves to really fully understand our godlike status. And, you know, if there's some Scientologists watching this and want to tell me I'm representing their religion wrong, uh, fuck you. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm not. Well, well, I, well, I time to get them. sued. Time to get sued. Yay. <laughs> Come after me, bitch. Uh, but no, they, they, this this idea that if you get rid of those sins, that you can get to your godlike status, your godlike power, and you can get to the actual universe where all this, like, intergalactic battle shit is going on. Uh, and you can realize your superpowers. Um. Here's the thing, when we have trauma, when we have bad things happen to us, these are considered thetans in the Scientologist viewpoint. It's not like you went around and stabbed people and you got thetans. It's not like you went around and robbed people and got thetans. It's not like you went around and cheated on your partner and got thetans. You got thetans for experiencing shitty things in past lives. It's like in Christianity, your sins are doing bad things in Scientology your sin is experiencing hardships that's fucked <laughs> in my opinion that is so fucked because of course as human beings we're going to experience hardships that should actually uh, be a thing that helps us learn helps us understand ourselves helps us understand others and they're saying 
automatic sin, automatic God status gone. Let's steam you for an hour and, and hopefully you don't die from hitting your head on a table and, and bleeding out. Yes, that happened to somebody. Um, so uh, experiencing life is not a sin, but that's what this movie is saying. Uh, not not what yeah. the movie is saying, but what their evil religion is saying. Yeah. It, it's amazing how humans have the capacity to, you know, religions especially, quantify the negative experiences of people as something that is tantamount to something that needs to be overcome by them. That's, there's these sin, we call them sins or thetans, or there's this sort of gathering of experiences of bad, and that's a morally loaded word, negative trauma-filled, grief-filled things that are, uh, that need to be overcome in some way, as, as, as opposed to, as opposed to an ample part of who you are, life-affirming things that make you who you are, um, which I, I find very interesting. I want to let Ben go before we hop into Kierkegaard, because I know Ben probably has quite a few things to say, too. Ben's like, no, I'm good. He's like, fuck yeah. religion. I'm good. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is that. Yes. But also, um, I do want to jump back really quick and I, th I feel like I can probably, um, segue a little bit for us. So let me go ahead and give this a shot. So I, d I do want to call back a little bit to, um, Noah, what you said about kind of like that intro scene in the movie where we have this coyote being hit by the car. And then, you know, obviously he has to put it out of its misery and obviously it's suffering and he, you know, enacts this merciful death on this coyote. So it, what is interesting, I think about that is whenever, um, whenever Kira, um, comes into the party and starts telling everyone about this. I forget who it is. And I really wish who I knew who said this, but someone actually points out that, it, that it's an act of mercy. I, I someone has that line. Um, it was, it was David. either. It was, yeah. Dave, I was going to say David. 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 Okay. Yeah, Fantastic. Of all yeah. People, of all people. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So David says this and I think, yeah, that absolutely sort of foreshadows the rest of the film. But also, again, you know, later on, whenever we see them watching this movie about this woman with cancer dying and then they again say, well, this is a beautiful thing. She's at peace, blah, blah, blah. This is a good thing that she's passed away. I, I find that kind of ironic, actually. So if if we do jump into kind of like an existential mindset here, especially a la Kierkegaard, um, I think what what is, is essentially his core thesis is that the the acceptance and knowledge of death is necessary for us to live essentially passionate, full lives. And so they almost take the the antithesis to that approach and say, okay, well, this pain and this knowledge of death is so monumentally heavy on a person, this knowledge that they will eventually fade away and die, that they need to be put out of their misery, right? And so like that's exactly the opposite of what I think we see in existentialism, where you know if you if you do accept that, it's not meant to be, okay, I accept this, I'll go ahead and die now so I can avoid all of this future pain. I will accept this fact so that I can better enjoy the life that I have before that happens. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's, it's a total, it's a total um, inversion, I think, of that philosophy, which is, I think, a fantastic way to kind of look at that as sort of like a framework for what we're seeing here and a framework for grief. Um, and I do believe I'm, I haven't really done my, my Kierkegaard homework, but I do think he also has kind of like a framework for thinking about um, despair in those same lines too, or maybe it's sort of like a, uh, a sort of like misplaced fear of the loss of self, but maybe I'm interpreting that incorrectly or something like that. Maybe someone else has more on that point. Well, it's also, it's also, I got to throw Nietzsche in here. My God, do I need to throw Nietzsche? I, it, this is also an inversion of Nietzschean philosophy. I think even more so than, than Kierkegaard. Nietzsche valued suffering heavily. Uh, 
Like he valued have, uh, suffering because he, I mean, and this is a weird reason, but he felt that the body was a thing made to suffer, whereas the mind was a thing used to create something meaningful from the suffering body. Now, I don't agree with that. I think that's wrong from a metaphysical standpoint, but I do echo the sentiment that the mind is able to turn suffering into something meaningful for a person. Like meaningful, not in like an exit strategy invitation sort of way, right? But meaningful in the midst of suffering. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Nietzsche is, I don't want to wage war against what is ugly. You know, that is to me a very profound statement um, because, you know, it, it, like for me, the ugly things in my life have been necessary to value beautiful things. Like, um, you know, and as, as, as much as I love Nietzsche, he takes this idea of, of engaging suffering to absurd levels. Like I, one of his most famous quotes is, and this is, I think, something he wrote to friends in like letters. Um, he said something to the effect like, to those humans who are of any concern to me, like my buddies, my friends. So it'd be like me telling you guys this, right? Um, for all of my buddies, paraphrasing Nietzsche here, I wish on you suffering, desolation, sickness, ill treatment, indignities. I wish that you should not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt, the torture of self-mistrust, the wretchedness, the wretchedness of the vanquished, to bring the film into it. Um, he says, I have no pity for them because I wish them the only thing that can prove whether or not one is worth anything, and that is that one endures. And that to me is, if there is any existential rub to this movie, that's it. Um, the value of enduring, right, and how far the human mind will go to numb the pains of that existence. This is a film that is very similar to Triangle. Um, we've matched it to Midsummer, but the grief that is in Triangle, what one will do in the midst of that grief. Triangle is a movie where a woman perpetually goes in a loop, killing all of her friends and her son over and over again, just to get a glimpse of her son and to try and redo the things that she has done wrong. And by doing that, she relives her grief and her trauma over and over, right? So I think this movie is actually very similar to Triangle in that regard. So I, I apologize for going sort of off loop with this, but if there is any sort of existential themes, and I, I, I pretty much say this about every film we do, oh, there's this Nietzschean element in it. But I, I now I, I feel like I've cried wolf because now we're in a state where like there really is this really big Nietzschean spin on it when it comes to suffering. Um, and I just, I had to throw that in. Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And also, fuck you for uh, wishing desolation upon me. Uh, <laughs> I would prefer not that desolation. I have enough. I go to work tomorrow. Uh, so, yeah, there's, I don't need that desolation. Thank you anyway. Um, I, but I, let's, let's sort of com complete the, uh, the existentialist troika, and I'm going to bring Camus into this thing. I mean, before you know it, uh, all the famous existentialist philosophers are going to to make an appearance in the podcast. Camus would argue that life is, by its nature, a uh, exercise in suffering. Uh, the myth of Sisyphus. We're all pushing that rock up the hill. Uh, same thing with uh, Triangle, as you as you talked about. I think that has a lot of uh, Camusian themes uh, going on in it as well. But I think. What Camus talks about is an existentialist hero. That is somebody who 
essentially recognizes that life is shit, but tries anyway. And I don't see that in the Logan Marshall Green character. Um, in fact, I think that this is a a movie devoid of existentialist heroes. Instead, it is asking us to think existentially, existentialistly. Um, I don't know if that's a word, but I made it up. I'm We're making it up now here. Yeah, the I deadly just, analysis yeah. Uh, So it's it's a movie that's for forcing us to think in an existentialist paradigm without providing us with an existentialist hero. It's forcing us to say that the answer to all of these questions is an existentialist frame of mind, which I think is an interesting way of challenging your audience uh philosophically so i think you're right to sort of point out the nietzschean and kierkegaardian themes uh but when we bring in camus idea of an existentialist hero we find this movie absent of of such a person and i think that's then then casts us in that role um and what do, what would our response to such tra trauma be what would the uh, response of an existentialist hero to be something in the middle between the logan marshall green character and and edie and eden uh and and the cult characters um something that is able to recognize that one has been changed by pain and that one continues anyway, accepting the new person that one has become. And so now we're going to get into yet another comp movie, and that is Annihilation. Annihilation says exactly that, that our pain changes who we are, and we must accept the new person that we become. And uh, I, I find that to be for my own taste to be a much more um, interesting and and uh, almost hopeful, although Nietzsche has quotes about hope as well, uh, hopeful message than, uh, than, than, than um, invitation, which I think in, in, it's both an interesting way to cast the audience as the existentialist hero, but it's also, a, it's, I, I wish that the movie had, had provided um, sort of a middle, middle ground between these characters. So I, I do find it interesting that you brought up Annihilation here. I think that's that's a fantastic uh, comparison to make. Um, I don't think that I saw Annihilation as being the least bit hopeful, though. Obviously, there is a transformation through pain that occurs, but I wouldn't necessarily see that as being heroic either. In fact, I think the biggest takeaway that I had from Annihilation is that we see a transformation with a net gain of zero. Um, and I think that that sort of is true of a lot of horror films. In fact, I think that's probably a big... I don't want to call it a trope, but like a central fiber in, in a lot of horror is that you see somebody go through pain, they go through suffering, they go through this sort of almost like this hero's journey, except it's all for naught. And I think that's the fantastic, the fantastically depressing thing about a lot of horror films is that they give you that journey that it just it just leads to nowhere. So I'm kind of wondering if we had a sort of existentialist hero in this film, if it would still be horror, if it would be something a little bit not not quite as horrorish, you know. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't know. I don't know what yeah. it would become. Yeah, horrorish, <laughs> horrorish. Yes, not horrorish. That's a very, yeah, it's a very different invitation. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that one in the mail. Um, no, I think that uh, I think perhaps you're right, Ben. That I was a little bit too uh, 
it's it's a little too strong to say that there's a hopeful message vis-a-vis uh, -vis annihilation. You're right about that. Um, thank you for challenging me on that. But I I nevertheless think that there is more and in annihilation there is a healthier response to pain, and that is to accept that you are a changed person and go on anyway. Um, you're right to say that hopeful might might have been too strong of a word. But I nevertheless think that there's 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 something in annihilation that's not here. And you didn't think that that was a part of this. So at the end, when uh, Will is holding Eden, and Eden has that flood and that torrent of of I yeah I miss him I miss him so much. And Will you know grips her and and says I guess says they say their goodbyes, and uh, they go out. They look at the red lanterns, and uh, he grips the hand of Kira. You don't think that that is a a hopeful thing in this movie? I'm curious if you guys don't find that hopeful. I don't. I thought that that was no. I, I do. That you nihilist fucks. I thought I was a nihilist. I do. Um, no, I. I understand why that might not be necessarily perceived as great, but I could see a sequel even coming of this. I hope it doesn't ever happen, but it could happen because there's they view in the last couple seconds of the movie that this has spread not just in their own vicinity, in their own peer group, but throughout the entire town. Who knows how far out it's gone? Um, and they're holding hands because now they're not just going to be fighting against this other thing that's their peer group, they're going to have to fight the world together. And that's what a real partnership is. That's what you really end up doing when you get married. That was a marriage. Uh, they came together and they were like, holy shit. So we had a hardship with our family and friends. Well, now we have to take on the world, honey. It's uh, it, it may not be the greatest thing in the world, but it is hopeful in that you found a partner that you can fight with together. And, uh, and she was pretty badass. She had some hardships. She cried a lot. She screamed a lot. She maybe talked when she shouldn't have to reveal their location, which I was yelling at her a lot in the movie about that. I was like, shut the fuck up, bitch. <laughs> like, stop talking. She killed Pruitt, though. She killed Pruitt. But she did. She, she, uh, it. She cried in between. I was like, keep hitting. What the fuck are you? Like, I yelled at her a lot. I will say that. Uh, the screen had some Shayra yelling happening. Um, let's. I mean, I mean, I like your reading of the end, Shayra. And I think I have a very similar reading. But I want to talk about their relationship. Because that was one of the things that didn't totally work for me about the characters in this movie. Uh you know, Noah, at the beginning of this this podcast, you characterized uh, Will's character as being totally distraught, um, as uh, sort of wallowing in the grief of the loss of his son. Am I right on characterizing your position that way? Yeah, once he's at the home, absolutely. I mean, which is the movie. Yes, absolutely. Right. He's frozen. I yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, as, except, of course, for his suspicions of, of the cult and, and all those things. He's pretty much uh, rendered he's he's pretty much rendered um, paralyzed by his grief. Yeah, he, he, he is the he is the most isolated character you will ever see surrounded by the most people that love him. You know what I mean? In the place in the in the place that should be the most comfortable. Right, you just home. described my husband, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> in every situation. 
that's a that's a profound turn of phrase you know i kind of want to take a moment to think about that but uh since i've got to keep talking i will um i think that their relationship i was a little bit confused by um and I think that a person that is so devastated as we have characterized Will as being, and I think we've rightly characterized him as being, doesn't doesn't get into a relationship, isn't capable of finding a cura over the course of two years after the death of his son, and isn't capable of of being present enough to be able to participate in that relationship. Um, and that when he says what I think is probably the cruelest line in this movie, you can't help me through this. I love you, but you can't help me through this. Um, that's a, the, as much as the ending and the holding of hands at the end is, is as you characterized it, a marriage, that's a divorce. You can't but, help me through this. That's but, a, okay. Can I, can I throw in some, uh, yeah. I, I'm going to throw in some personal shit. Uh, when I met my husband, he experienced a loss of a family member. The person he loved more than anybody on this planet. Um, I cannot even try to understand what that pain is like. I cannot even try. And a lot of ways, uh, when we would have conversations, there, there, did, there was some uh, robotic nature to it that was very similar to Will's in the movie. There was a lot of, uh, you can't understand what I'm going through. But one of the things that happens when you're understanding of trauma and when you understand that people need to be able to be robots and need to be angry at times and need to um, act out at times and then at other times just space out. <laughs> like Honestly, that is part of grief too. When you understand all the different levels of grief and how everybody deals with grief and you are strong beside them no matter what, it can lead to that point. But here's the other thing that happened to them that is why they held hands at the end and why that's the only time when you actually see that they are married finally, when they really are a partnership finally, because they aren't throughout the film and you're right about that feeling. They finally have shared trauma and shared trauma does bring us together as fucked as that might be it does bring us together because now we can sit around and be like dude do you remember when that fucking bald fuck you had to hit him in the head three times that was some crazy shit holy crap we went through that together hey let's make a joke about him and and you can make memes and jokes and and you experience that shared trauma together this is one of the reasons why we humans can come across as callous when we joke around with one another, but it's also part of our bonding and how we go, hey, I remember that. Hey, do you remember that? Um, so I, I get it. Like they, She didn't have as hard of a fucking experience as Eden and Will did, but they finally had a shared trauma and now they have to defeat the world that is uh, apparently fallen into this cult. So... They're going to be able to defeat it. I agree with you about the end. I just don't. I just don't know what that first date is like. You know. Well, see, so, but I think I think to to piggyback off Shayra, I think Shayra Shay, Kira in some ways. Like I think, the, like not understanding. How, so you gotta you gotta contextualize Will's grief as part and parcel of being back at the home where his son was. So I think the statement that you know, that he says to Kira of, you know, I don't know if I can have a child with you. There's some, some, some nod to that. And I think that that difference, it, 
may not have ever come up before. It's insinuated that that's, that's happening because he's in a place that's reminding him of the place that he's frozen at in his mind. And I think there are people out there, Jim, that can, that can engage with those who are going through that robotic sense of grief and trauma who may have either had it before or who know how to handle those in the midst of it. I've met people like that myself. So I think that relationships are more complex than that. I think that you're right that the film doesn't really give us much between them. Um, but I think that's on purpose. I want to give Kusama the benefit of the doubt that that's on purpose. And I think that the instances that you point to in this movie that show that their relationship was not as strong are instances that are contextualized in a place where Will is losing his shit because his son died feet, you know, his room was right there. His wife's right there. His wife comes down the fucking staircase, like looking like she's either going to a wedding or in a burial shroud. There's something off with her. He's got a lot of shit going on. So, so I, I, I think that the complexities of relationships might be a little more. I, I think, I think you're not giving enough credit to the dynamics between two people and the capacity for empathy in one party when they're with someone who uh, is with someone who's, who's suffered or is suffering, I think. Um, I respect your opinion, but I, 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 can, I, I, think there's, I think there's some navigation there that you may not be seeing. That's fair. Um, I will, you know, my only counter argument to this is I don't want this to be a total podcast on uh, about Shayra, um, which no, this <laughs> is I've changed the title to the Shayra analysis podcast. I'm <laughs> doing it right now on Twitter. I mean, what the fuck? But I suggest that I, I suggest that Shayra is a person who can, uh, not only empathize with trauma, but also sympathize with trauma. So if she meets somebody who is going through trauma, my suspicion is, uh, I don't know how much, I, I'm not going to say anything specifically publicly, but my suspicion is she is somebody who can not only empathize with it, but sympathize with it. And therefore she would be a much more um, willing receiver of, of a robotic and uh, difficult uh, partner. Um, that said, I don't. We don't know enough about Kira to be able to make sort of a Shayra to Kira one to one uh, uh, comparison there. And uh, a black woman in America. Enough said. Well, their their, their <laughs> names also sound similar. Like Shayra, <laughs> yeah. they're like power yeah. names. So I mean, here's 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 go. the thing. Yeah, we all experience different kinds of trauma, but I've never experienced uh, someone I care about more than anything dying. I have never experienced that. I could never understand that. I have not experienced that yet. It doesn't mean I can't try to understand that. And um, maybe that makes me somehow special like Kira. But it, it, this is, I think, a human thing. And this is actually a huge part of the movie, if you look at it. We are looking at a bunch of people that are trying to be understanding of Eden and Will's loss. This is an entire group that they didn't experience a child dying. The entire group is there to be supportive in this transition of uh, being able to cope with an extreme loss. It's been two, only two years. Two years is a very short time to have experienced a, a, a death of a child. Um, and we saw what happened in Antichrist. It could have gone far worse for these fuckers. They've both moved on in, in good relationships with people. You are going to try to be very supportive of your friends in this situation and be sensitive to it. I know for a fact all three of you guys would definitely be there. 
for your friends. If they moved on in other relationships and experienced that kind of loss, you guys would try to go to a, a party like this. You would try to enjoy the weird, you know, uh, grape lemon bowl of food. I thought, I don't know why that bothered me so much that they had grapes and lemons in the same bowl, but you know, uh, the, the spread of food and the expensive wine and, and, Oh, you joined a cult a little bit. Mm, I'm going to question it a bit, but I'm going to try to be supportive because you guys have been through some shit. I, don't I think know. I just, everyone can understand that. You may not support be, that part. If but, you if you joined a cult, Shayra, I don't know if I'd be supportive of it. I, uh, well, well, but well, but you'd be. I think Jim. I think Shayra's on to something. You'd be. You would. You would. Mm, you would. Fall, you would toe the line to a certain point, and I think that line would be further along than you think. I would like to think. Out of social moray, out of the friendship you have I with Shara. I accidentally do that, even though I am, I would see all the signs. Uh, and I agree with the blonde chick. The blonde chick was like, I have to go. I would have been that chick. I would have been that chick. I would have been dead, but I would have been that chick. <laughs> like, well, I, we don't, I mean, that's another thing that we don't know what happens to Claire. And she I went think out with oh, she's dead, dude. She, yeah, Claire yeah. is gone. I we I I would have liked to have seen that, but uh, yeah, it would have well, been. No, but that's oh my god! But Jim, that's ah, Jim, that's that's the that's the beauty of this movie is it gives you just the right amount of things, and it makes you wonder about just the right amount of other things. It's 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 that it you know, and Will, your Will in that scene, Will's looking out the window, what's going on? Well, I love that scene because you have you share the same skepticism as as Will. And you're right at the part of the movie where you're starting to wonder, is Will fucking losing his shit? But at the same time, everything does seem kind of awkward. So you're watching. You got that window peeping Tom sort of vibe thing. You're looking. You're watching. Oh, is that your Prius? Oh, let me move it. You know? Oh, hey, one more thing. And you're like, what? What? It keeps you engaged. Do you know what I mean? I would hate this movie if I found out Pruitt was like, oh, yeah, I capped that bitch. No, he doesn't say that. Comes in. He was like, hey, uh, you know, I guess my... Yes, my story kind of scared her. I apologize, but you know, it's all I can do. And I'm well, sitting there going like, uh, what? I, I, I mean, I think the film would have been better off if Will leaves the house at some point is somehow able to leave the house at some point. And, um, this is when he's trying to convince everybody that the cult is, is weird. He goes to find Claire's car and Claire's car is gone. Which oh. would lead us to believe that Claire had escaped. Or he, like, here's Claire! And uh, that's when shit goes down. Or something along those lines. Like, those, they, Claire, for me, felt like a drop story thread. Now, I think we are, this is, it, it is sort of getting to a very interesting uh, difference in the way all of us read films. And that is you are looking at a film for, you know, personal resonance. And this film works for you on that level. Uh, Shayra and Ben are also looking at at, at films in, in uh, particular idiosyncratic ways. And I'm looking at films in my own idiosyncratic ways. And, and that is as, you know, a, from a technical filmmaking um, uh, perspective. I would call I, Claire I a drop story thread. I don't uh, know if that's necessarily a fair assessment, Jim. That seems to be, uh, I don't know, man, that that seems a little condescending. And I, I think I'm that, sorry, uh, I don't mean to condescend anybody. No, no, it's totally fine. I don't do think it was think intentional. I just, I, I do want to, I, I want to make the distinction here that I do think that a lot of the the discussion around this film versus Midsommar, I, I think like the distinctions that we're making there are heavily, heavily aesthetic. But from my perspective, I do appreciate, I think that we have a film here 
that that leaves a little bit left, you know, a little bit unsaid. Um, it doesn't necessarily show you everything. Um, you're calling it a drop storyline. I call it subtlety. Um, and I appreciate the fact that it's not beating you over the head with every single detail of the story. And it just kind of like lets you imply certain things. And in fact, I would almost call that Hitchcockian in a way. I don't necessarily think uh, I don't necessarily think it's a flaw of the film. I just I think it's a I think it's an art. The the subtlety of not necessarily stating everything bluntly is, is something that we don't see enough today. I, I really appreciated that aspect of this film. Um, yeah, yeah, you condescending fuck. <laughs> I don't I still don't see how he's being condescending, but uh I I understand that uh, we are I what I was trying to suggest was that we all read films differently. Can I and, can I ask you this question, ahead. Jim? Can we agree that even if Pruitt didn't bash her over the head and put her in her trunk down the street, which is obviously what happened, and I, I don't think anybody could read it any other way. Can we at least agree that since all of the red lanterns are lit, she's fucked? Not necessarily. I mean, maybe she lives in another neighborhood. Like, this is uh, something we but don't know about. she's driving through that neighborhood. Every house has a red lantern. This party is happening at every house in the Hollywood Hills, which yeah, means that these are big groups of people committing mass suicide without their consent. But the uh, most... The modus operandi of this cult is to gather the people that you love and die with them. Now, unless she happens to have a whole bunch of people who love her on the way home who are all like, oh, come in and join our dinner party instead, then then she might very well have had a fantastic evening watching Game of Thrones that night. Uh, Who knows? But we don't know enough about Claire. (laughs) College (laughs) professor, and we know that she's friends with this group of people. That's all we know about her. Claire's dead. She's so dead, guys. There is no... There's no reason for Pruitt to go, hey, one more thing. That's, she's dead. There's no need for him to do that with a coat. With a coat, by the way. Just oddly enough, carrying a coat, not wearing it the entire time, carrying it. Carrying a coat with likely a gun underneath. Uh, I, so I agree with you that Claire is likely dead in that scene. But from a structural point of view, when I'm writing this movie, that is a story thread that that's a gun that's a gun on the mantle that has to go off by the third act. Jim, I would love here's what I want from you, Jim. I want you to write a Lovecraftian novel. I want to know what your version of a Lovecraftian novel would be or or story because it seems to me that I I I totally side with Ben on this that the power of a, <laughs> the power of a lot of this movie is the stuff I think you're criticizing, the unseen nature of the cult. I don't want to know the rest of that shit. I think the fact that they hone in on one thing is what makes it powerful. Uh, I like the 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 what else do they believe sort of vibe that's not given to me. I like the idea that Claire may or may not make it out. She probably didn't, but I like the idea that there's one character who says this is awkward. I'm gonna leave. I'm like yay for that. It, the film's giving us someone who would go up and leave, and they get to their car, but it's not. Enti- you're not entirely sure she makes it. Like not answering questions is itself a kind of art. Like we need to understand this. If you answered. Every question posed in a movie, it would be a shitty fucking movie. 
Many films would be shit if you answered every question you posed. Some films pose questions and let the audience wonder, and that's what makes the movie so great. And I think this is one scene in this film where that may be the case. I think there's a difference between thematic questions and story questions. Uh, questions about plot mostly need to be answered. Mostly. I think, uh, I think it was about answered. theme mostly need to be asked. I think it was answered in, in sort of a, a way, um, at least in my interpretation. And I think it really kind of goes back to the way that they preserve the the main like foundational like fundamental tension throughout this movie which is like the, that core conflict that you're asking yourself the entire time is will out of his mind is he paranoid is he crazy is he the problem or is he right and so the reason i think obviously that they didn't answer the question is to preserve that tension um and when you find out that no he's not well, okay, I guess the answer is yes on both counts. Yes, he's kind of losing his mind, but he's not wrong. There is something going on. And the minute that you find out that the the wine is poisoned, I think that's the moment you know, ha, so Pruitt did go out there to kill her. I think that's the connection that I personally made and how they sort of closed that story in a way that wasn't like specifically having a camera go out there, you know, and seeing a, a body, you know what I mean? Like you don't see the body, you just sort of like know whenever they give you the final aha at the wine scene. And it's a staple of, of to me, it's a staple of shit horror and cheap horror films when you get that close up da, 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 there's the body that person's not there they really died and now you know everything back at the house has this different taste to it this different texture to it, it you know what i mean it's like how many horror films do we know where a person goes missing we don't see them for a certain part of the film and then right when we see their carcass we now know other things about the movie we now know someone did something they should like it, it, that's how easy it could have been for kusama to do this but she didn't like she lets you hold on to it. And I, I think I didn't even think of that actually, Ben, that's a, to, it's right at the right time to preserve that, 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 uh, that, that, that Will might be losing his shit. That, that's actually even a better, a better way of preserving it than I thought. So yeah, I just, I, I would rate this film an entire point lower easily. If I found out that Claire, if I saw Claire's carcass, if I saw Claire's body, I'd be like, but I guess, yeah, it's just a fundamental difference between, I guess, the way we see this, uh, or uh, I assume I'm speaking for Sharon, Ben, the way we see this and the way you see it. Very interesting difference. You fucking filmmaker. <laughs> you you actor. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't I haven't made a film in years. So uh, I I don't think I think the way that scene was shot was very effective. That particular scene, I just wanted. I don't need to see Claire's corpse. I just need to see Claire's car. If Claire's car is still there in the third act, that gives me all of the information that I need. And I think it preserves some of the effect that you guys like about it. And it also sort of ties together the story thread for me. Um, that's how I would solve this problem. Um, and I would put it in the third act during the chase sequence. Let's have them like look out the window and see Claire's car still there. Let's have that, like, just that moment would be enough to tie together that thread for me. And I would rate the film a point higher. Oh, my God. I would die. I would die. I would I would die if this movie did that. You know, well, hey, you know, there, there you go. The invitation to Claire's Revenge. You know, that's incoming. Who knows? We don't know what happened to her. So, uh, yeah. You know, hey, uh, so one of the things I wanted to touch on was the idea of the scream. So, so. You know, there's a certain point in this movie where Will says something to the effect, and I think this is a 
a really profound way to describe grief. He says, I feel like there's a scream stuck inside me that I, I can't let out, right? Um, and I think that's, that's grief. That, that's almost a perfect way to describe it. And we also see this with Sadie in the bathroom. Did you notice that? There's a scene where she's looking into the mirror doing that little like tongue thing where she looks all crazy. Like what you do in the mirror when you're trying to like be like, how do I look today? And you look like a fucking insane person. I, don't, I do that. I don't know if y'all do that. Um, but there's a certain point where she screams and she can't scream. You hear like a little high pitched thing, but she's screaming, looking at the mirror and screaming and she can't let anything out. And to me, that says something like, you know, she is also, and everyone in that house is suffering from something like the same kind of ailment as will, grief and trauma and pain, but she's chosen a radically different method to address it, right? She she is looking forward to this invitation and, and it, it's still leaking through. The grief and the trauma is still, is, is still coming through. And there's a point where she's trying to express it, but can't. Um, and I think this, this, you know, this movie is there's such a, so much going on in this movie that I love, you know, the movie plays, I think on our desire once again, to see all of those that we've loved and lost, um, and gives us the idea that we shouldn't take the hollow promises. I think of every invitation to paradise that's offered to us that, you know, to be, tr to be truly human, right. If we're going to be human, to be truly human is to engage in suffering as a communal part of the human experience. And I think that's the community part, uh, Jim, that may be lacking is that, like it's, it's the cult has it backwards. It's not communal to remove suffering together. It's communal to engage in it. It's part of being human. You know, the cult has it backwards. You don't bring people together to kill suffering. You bring people together to get through their suffering. And I, 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 that's what I love about this movie so much. I'm sorry. I said like 30, I really went off the rails with that, but that's one of the things that I was thinking of is is sort of the, the dual nature of the scream in this movie where one character has an internal scream that he can't get out because he's lost in the, the grief of the past, very triangle-esque, and another person is looking forward to the ending of that pain and also suffers the same ailment of not letting that scream out. You know, um, this, this movie to me is well thought out in that regard. I, I feel like Kusama is someone who has definitely experienced trauma. I, I She's also, sorry, I just want to throw this one joke out and then you can actually say something poignant, Ben. Uh, <laughs> she also is a person who destroyed Eon Flux and uh, fuck her for that. But <laughs> uh, this is far superior to that. So I won't hold it completely against her, but she has caused grief and trauma in me in destroying <laughs> <laughs> Eon Flux. Sorry, go ahead, Ben. I'm sorry. No, I, I agree. She was she was giving you a gift. She was giving you an experience to make the rest of your life more enriched and powerful by destroying this movie for you. Um, no, I I I think it's. <laughs> um, she yeah, also like, did one of my favorite movies of last year, and that's Destroyer. So she's a very uh, talented director. So I yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Ben. It's yeah. No, it, it's interesting, man. It's such a weird, random choice to put that in the movie as such like a core critical point. You know what I mean? It's a very specific feeling and a, a phenomenon and like an experience to that she's describing. Um, it's it's not the first time that I've heard that actually. It's like whenever if you talk to people who have like really heavy generalized anxiety, like maybe they're on medication for it. They have sort of like this tension that they hold on to all the time. Um, you know, a lot of time that's also sort of paired with kind of like a depression and it sort of like goes back and forth, right? And like you get 
caught in that cycle. And so like people that I know, like friends that, that I have that go through this experience have like described that exact same kind of thing to me before. It's like where they're just sitting there and they might seem fine on the outside, but on the inside, like they just have to let that tension out somehow. And it's through that, that visualization that you see will it's like in his mind, you see him just screaming because that's what he wants to do. And that's what he feels when on the, on the exterior, presumably he's just, you know, kind of seemingly dissociated and distant at this dinner party with his friends. You know what I mean? It's, it's so, it's so specific. It's such an incredibly specific choice. Um, I think it's, it's incredibly brilliant for that because it's so realistic. And that's like one of the other things that I really wanted to praise about this film is like, not just like the relationships that I, I, I found like the awkwardness between the interpersonal relationships I thought was incredibly believable. Like the depiction of grief and trauma I thought was also incredibly realistic and believable. Um, and it just seemed very well grounded and very well connected to, to reality. Um, it's, it's great at that. Like she, she did the director did a, a fantastic job with making it, a very believable movie. Yeah, there's there's lots of close-ups on faces uh, when violent acts of violence are going on, so you don't necessarily see the bullet holes. You don't necessarily see the the, the you know the stabbings. You you see the faces of the people watching. You see Kira uh, when Miguel gets Miguel when Miguel gets shot. You see Kira's face. Uh, you see the reaction to it, and that's that's a uh, you know I, I think that goes to the point of. Being a, being a filmmaker who wants you to understand grief and pain by seeing facial expressions of those engaged in moments of trauma and shock. Do you know what I mean? Um, look, I'll get personal with you guys for a minute. I and I don't know if I'll add this or not, but I, my, for me, you know, the the reason this film is so important to me is I've come to understand in my own life that the middle ground when you're facing grief and trauma is something like understanding that those things are always going to be there, but polishing them, <laughs> right? So. A long time ago, I had a conversation with my, with a counselor. I, I, I decided I'm never going to go to a psychiatrist I, because I felt like if I did, it would be a uh, admonition that there's something wrong with me. So up until a few years ago, I just never went. I held everything inside of me. And, like, and I, I talked in other podcasts about things that have happened to me when I was young. It follows, in case you're interested. God help you. Uh, so so I uh, when I had my first couple sessions, is the only time this happened to me, I... I made my I made my counselor cry, which is never I never heard of that. Like I sort of went through basically everything that had happened to me in a summary form, and um, I left her in tears. And that that wigged me out because it showed me that like I had experienced and balled up and kept in um, a great amount of experiences that that. Uh, that left me um, like I shouldn't be here in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? I think Christianity ended up being one of the things that saved me. Side note. Um, but uh, by the third, fourth, fifth session, it, it dawned on, I think, both of us, my counselor and myself, that one of the things people who go through trauma and grief and profound instances of violence and things like this, um, they, you, you have to acknowledge that you're always going to have these things with you. And so we used to call them balls. I would say, I have all these balls. I'm juggling balls. Not like nuts, sickos. I, I mean, it kind of, we, we actually made jokes like that. I have all these balls, almost like Zenyatta on, uh, Overwatch. We got all these balls and we're never going to get rid of these balls. No matter what I do as a person, I'm not going to get rid of the, the, the dad dying in a car accident ball. My best friend committing suicide by flagrantly overdosing on drugs ball. I'm not going to get over the fact that I was beaten brutally ball. Like I have these balls, right? And 
I gotta make sure to polish these things as I continue on in my life and to not let them sit and rest and get dirty. And that polishing sometimes means taking a step back and almost third-personizing the situation, if you will, understanding that this is what I've gone through. This is probably why I'm very stressed right now when I'm when it's Father's Day and I go out and I'm chilling and I see families everywhere and I get a panic attack. Like, uh, why is it, I, why is it, well, here's why it's happening. Like, it's a step back understanding of the situation and an acceptance that it's okay, an acknowledgement of the things you went through. I feel like I'm helping myself out right now just by talking about this. I feel better about myself. But, uh, you know, it's a step back sort of understanding of these things. It's a middle ground between there's different this movie so perfectly hits the different ways a person can take it. It's a middle ground between letting those things define me and ultimately not moving past them and using them as excuses even, which is I'm prone to do sometimes. Um, that's why I have this podcast to work through my shit. Thanks, guys. Uh, it, willing participants, I hope. And then, and then the difference between that and then on the other side, sort of the self-help, you know, life coach, just get over it. Like, it's okay. Drink kale. Drink kale shakes. Like, you're good. Believe. Just believe. Go to Soul Cycle twice a week. You know what I mean? Yoga. Meditate. Like, it's one of those things where the middle ground, I think, is a stoic acceptance. And this is why I was very careful in my opening to say, I would like to believe and I hope that this is what Will took. I don't necessarily think we have an answer to that when we see Will at the end uh, and Will holding Eden. I, 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 I felt hope, but I could just be polishing my balls when I do that. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, but this film ch is a challenge to, uh, to polish your balls. It's a, ch it's a challenge to polish your balls. I've segued poorly from this. But anyway, I thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's wrap it up and score this movie because I have to edit an hour and 45 minutes. Okay. So overall, the invitation I think is a strong film that brings up a lot of themes that we've talked about here. Um, that said, I still think that while I recommend it, while I generally liked it, I think that other films do the same things that this film does better. Um, so, for example, I've already talked about the com comparison with Annihilation, how we get sort of gradations in the way people deal with guilt and grief and loss and all of those uh, traumas that affect us and change who we are. I think that Annihilation provides five different pathways that human beings relate to this, whereas I think The Invitation only provides two. Um, in terms of the social aspect of dealing with grief and trauma, how one's social network sort of responds to grief and trauma, I think a film like Manchester by the Sea does that exceptionally well. Of course, not a horror film, but nevertheless, that is, that's a film that I think the, the thesis of it is that the hardest thing to do when experiencing grief and loss is to order pizza the next day. So it's a little bit boring because there are a lot of scenes of ordering pizza, but it also deals with these, uh, the social machinations of somebody who has gone through grief and trauma in a very intelligent and interesting way. And so much better than, um, than, than uh, the invitation does. And we've already talked about how the inculcation into a cult is dealt with a lot better in Midsummer. Um, so it, 
this film sort of reminds me of a lot of films that did the same thing that this film is trying to do better. And for that, I felt like I wanted to watch those films instead. That said, there's a lot to like here. I think the direction is really good. Um, the framing of the shots is 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 usually very good. Um, some of the it's able to make a claustrophobic setting um, both claustrophobic when it needs to be, but also expansive when the plot needs it to be. I think Logan Marshall Green is is very good. I think all of the acting by the supporting cast members, especially Tammy Blanchard, is is really good. And John Carroll Lynch, who played Pruitt, uh, received a nomination from a horror film, a, a nomination for a, a, an award specifically for horror films. I think that's well-deserved as well. Uh, he is delightfully menacing uh, while also being able to play Norm in Fargo. Um, so I think that there's a lot here that I really like. For me, the film didn't coalesce as well as it did for uh, my 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 colleagues um and i also didn't see some of the I, I wasn't able to get some of the personal relationships to trauma and grief the way for example noah was able to uh to make those connections and so as a result of it not really hitting me on a personal level on a gut level the way an annihilation did and uh i've already talked about some of the structural issues associated with what I think are dropped story threads, what other people think are good filmmaking, and those those arguments have their merits. Uh, based upon my tastes, it didn't fully coalesce for me. That said, I recommend it. I give it three stars out of five. So I do want to give this a higher rating than Jim did. I think it was uh, pretty solid overall, honestly. Um, as I already mentioned, I think one of my biggest praises of this film is that it was so incredibly down to earth and what I think is realistic in terms of the relationships that we saw, the awkwardness of friends that maybe haven't seen each other in a couple of years where we have that sort of base level of trust there, but still some like weirdness going on because obviously everyone's changed a little bit. And now we have a couple of members of the friend groups who are part of a cult. Um, I, I, do you think that with regard to the existential stuff, I think, you know, we, we in this discussion, we've talked a little bit about heroes and about, you know, the Sisyphus character and the Sisyphus myth where we have this idea that, you know, you have someone struggling through their life, but we should imagine them happy because the struggle is sort of what can give it meaning. And like we have Kierkegaard talking about how death and like the acceptance of one's own mortality can um, make the the moments that you have alive more rich and more profound. Um those might actually be I while while I do think those are interesting philosophies and I have my agreements with them I think it might come off as a little bit ivory tower especially if you were to talk about those themes with somebody who has lost a child um you know I do have family members who have lost children um to various circumstances and if I were to bring something like that to them I feel like they would be incredibly pissed so I, I do also think that while you know those those themes are really interesting whenever we're talking about the invitation the invitation itself um, does a good job at showing that there isn't necessarily this sort of heroic um, grand light at the end of the tunnel all the time, especially when we're dealing with this particular kind of trauma. We have somebody who went through a painful experience. They've come out the other end. They're continuing to fight on, presumably. 
at least in the case of our protagonist. Um, but it doesn't necessarily seem like they're they're championing and they're happy and their their life is better off. It's just that they're a survivor. Um, and I think that's obviously a, a common thread in many horror films is that you have somebody who is the survivor person who isn't necessarily made tr- better by the trauma that they've gone through, but they are coming through it and they are sort of like the strong sort of closest we can get to a hero in these kinds of films. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think there are lots of different ways to tell the story that we're seeing here. And like, obviously, I kind of quipped a little bit about um, Inside Out at the beginning, but also, yes, Annihilation is a great way to think about the same ideas in an aesthetically somewhat different um, storytelling perspective. Um, same for Midsommar. But I do really appreciate that this movie has its own unique merits in the fact that I don't think any of the other films that I've seen, and while like I do really enjoy uh, Annihilation and Midsommar, I think this one was particularly good in showing us a really interesting kind of, of tension in that um, there's a lot of sort of like gaslighting going on, and I don't think we really talked about that too much, is that you have Will, who is sort of going through this incredibly difficult experience he's back in the home where his child died and yes like it makes perfect sense that he would be losing his mind a little bit but the interesting thing here is that throughout the entire course of the evening we see little bits and pieces of him just sort of being made to feel like he's crazy for acting the way that he's acting when in reality he seems to be having a perfectly reasonable logical um, emotionally understandable response to to what's going on. In fact, everyone else might be expecting a little bit too much out of him. And Eden, I think his sort of like counterpart, the shadow to his light, um, is in fact the weird one in that obviously she has this very sort of smiley, happy face going on. But underneath, she is doing far worse than he is. In any case, um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here from the storytelling perspective. Um, the cinematography was pretty good. I, you know, I don't think that's really necessarily the strongest point here, but the music was really it's kind of like on point, I think, supported the mood very well throughout the film. Um, and there were a lot of choices made that I think were, were absolutely, absolutely solid. Um, while it could have been probably a little bit better, I don't think it was bad by any means. Um, and I do think it was better than, than Jim rated it. I think at the end of the day, um, I'm I'm honestly probably going to have to give this a four just because while it might not shine through and in certain areas as being absolutely spectacular in other areas i think it's an incredibly an incredibly strong film um that a lot of people especially if you have something in your background and and you need to to hear a story and watch a story about grief and about how that can be processed this might be something that you could really get a lot out of so yeah four out of five so uh, this film is is one of those things where we could talk about the music and the lighting and the cinematography. All these things fall in line very well with this film. And I, I don't think anyone can argue that it's not done well. Um, the main thing that this film did for me, though, was point out that I'm a bitch for a reason. And I think that's really important in a story because this doesn't happen in a lot of horror movies, right? Like, we get into these horror movies where you have people giving the benefit of the doubt all the time and it gets them in these bad situations. And, and we are going back to a very Hitchcockian kind of uh, view where it's like, I'm skeptical. This is a mystery that is unfolding before me. And I am very skeptical of the stuff that people are trying to portray in front of me. And I am questioning it all throughout. Um, although this is a, a, a character experiencing this as opposed to the audience experiencing it. Um, now, it, it, we are also experiencing it, though, I should say. But, uh, you know, you have this character who is just questioning it. And then 
it really throws you for a loop when he's like, where's Choi? Where's Choi? Well, there's Choi. So you're crazy 100% of the way. That's not how things work. My gut feeling and all of the stuff I've been accumulating as information is still valid even if Choi is okay. And, and this is something that is absolutely necessary for people not only who've experienced grief and who have experienced stressful things in life and then are invalidated when they're questioning things around them, but uh, just anybody who is starting to get an uneasy feeling about things and starts to question things and everyone's like, you're crazy. You're crazy, you're crazy. No, you're not. Just because one thing is off doesn't mean all those other things are, are fine. That's not how that works. But that's what they do to him. He ends up crying and he's like, I'm so sorry. I fucked up. Of course, he didn't really mean it. <laughs> I mean, he was, he slapped those glasses out of everybody's hands except for Gina. Poor Gina. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, he obviously listened to his gut feeling at the end of the day. We do question our gut feelings a lot of the time. And we do have these arguments with our friends every day on social media. We are constantly having these uh, discussions and these disagreements where we're like, no, you're wrong about this. No, I'm right about this. Um, it's it's kind of nice to have a movie show that, right? You, you're questioning what your peers are seeing and you're like, no, don't, don't you see X, Y, Z? Look at all this evidence. Look at all these things that are happening right before your very eyes. And they're like, you're... Calm down, everything's fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. But then, in the same token, that is what creates some of these cult like viewpoints. This is actually how the Alex Jones occur, right? They're like, look at all the crazy stuff. No, I don't see it. You've drank the Kool Aid. It could go either way. So it's, uh, it's kind of um, a circular kind of a view, right? Like, Will could have been the crazy person. It could have easily twisted at the end that Will was absolutely nuts. And there was nothing wrong with any of them. And he ends up killing all of them and thinking he's right. That it, it could have ended that way. And because it could have ended that way, it's beautiful. I think that's one of the reasons why this film really stands out to me. Because up until a certain point, anyone could have been the Pruitt, right? So um, I think that they did put a good you know, point towards the fact that Pruitt and all of them are crazy. But we are questioning it up until a certain point. And so um, I also, can I just say that Lynch did an absolutely phenomenal job being a scary motherfucker. And I've seen him be a scary clown as well. And my God, he is a frightening, frightening person. If he, if he pops up in any horror movie, just expect that he's going to do something horrible to somebody and it's going to be bad. But um, uh, I, I think this is one of those films that shows that change can be scary um when we depart from our friends or don't talk to them for a while it's a frightening thing they could be completely different and we have this idea that like if someone changes their political views or changes their religious views we can no longer be friends and we can no longer hang out with each other we might even be afraid to say that we've changed our political views or our religious views because we're afraid our friends or family will not accept us anymore and this is a huge revealing factor to that. It, it does bring forth those fears of, it's been a while since we talked to each other. Have we completely changed? Do we need to just keep on like talking like everything's fine, <laughs> even though it's probably not going to turn out great? I, it, it makes me so uncomfortable and it makes me so, um, 
it's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. It makes me uncomfortable. I feel an extreme uncomfortable feeling from this. And it's funny because we've talked about how my version of horror is uh, an absence of agency. But a part of absence of agency is if an alien takes over your brain or if dementia takes over your brain. But what if you take over your brain? What if the agency is that you become a different person because of grief, because of trauma, because of just being apart from your friends for a while, because you've fallen in love with somebody else? Is that a a loss of agency? Is just change a loss of agency? So this can really add to my own problems (laughs) and my own like things that bring fear to me. So I definitely give this a four. Scared the shit out of me. It makes me uncomfortable every time I watch it. And uh, yeah, it's it's a good film. It's beautiful, but it also fucks with your head and makes you think. And I love that. So it's beautiful. It fucks with your head and it makes you think. What 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 could what else could you ask of a horror movie? What else could you ask? I dare say. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll end this briefly by just saying well one of the things i want to do really quickly is go back to ben's earlier point about you know the idea like if you if you know someone who's lost a child let's say and offering them some sort of Camusian, kierkegaardian nietzschean existential philosophy um i totally agree sometimes that's the i think most of the time that's the worst thing you could do it is a privilege to philosophize and i don't mean privilege in like the sjw sense uh it it, it it but it really is a privilege to philosophize and i think that you know this most people don't have the time they don't have the ability the capacity it's life is hard and rough and it's your days are long and trauma is all-encompassing sometimes and to philosophize a lot of people don't have the luxury to do it and i think that's part of the reason why this cult is so powerful it's it offers an immediate shot and a nullif- an immediate nullification right into the vein of grief, right? Um, so yeah, I, I just want to kind of echo that sentiment that I think Ben was saying. Um, and look, I, 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 this movie is so powerful to me. Uh, it's high-minded. It's intelligent. It's scary in the sense that I define scary, something that has to be fundamental to the human experience. It has to hit on something that is timeless, that affects pretty much everybody. Like death is something that affects everybody. So movies that dance around the concept of it tend to get high scores for me. Uh, but grief is is similar. I, I think to be human is to experience grief. I said this a few times in this podcast. Um, there's a sense in which this movie is kind of familial. It has the loss of a child. One of the scariest things to me is having a kid and having them get hit with a bat in the head and you just, you've lost everything. You've lost everything you've worked up to. You lost part of yourself, part of your spouse. Uh, it's why I, I, it's why I don't, it's why I'm 34, almost 35. Don't have a kid. Don't think I ever can. Uh, it's a fear. Uh, so there is a familial part of this movie too. Fr- a friendship familial part too, that I think scares me. It hits everything that really scares me about a, a good horror movie. It has superb attention to detail when it comes to tension. This is one of the most tense films I've ever seen. And it's high-minded in the sense that it's a challenge, too, to deal to to, to, to contemplate how one deals with grief. Um, I don't think it offers anything substantively normative. I think it critiques some of the things that are normative. Like Shara said, it critiques the one answer, one size fits all sort of approach. I think it's an indictment of those simple answers. Um, and so, you know, if there is anything negative in this movie to me, it's that everyone's beautiful in it. 
I hate movies like that typically, where everyone, it, it's the house, uh, the Haunting of Hill House, which by the way has one of the same people in it, David. I think he's this, one of the same actors in The Haunting of Hill House. I forget his name. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, you know, it, this is one of those movies that hits every core component to me that makes a movie scary. It's shot well. It gives me just enough to understand it and leaves just enough for me to wonder. Um, this, this is a five out of five for me. A hundred percent. This is a five out of five. Uh, this movie w just hasn't left me. I've seen it four or five times, and every time I watch it, I'm more impacted by it. Um, and I, I, I know Kusama has done some films before this that were not great. Girl Fight, some other ones. Um, but uh, this, I don't know what happened here. This must, this movie hit something with her, or, or she did something with this movie that I, that it's just so different to me than than the one or two other films that I've seen of hers. And um, it speaks to me, it speaks to me on a very deep level, hits all the fear elements, fear schema for me. Uh, and I, uh, I recommend it to everyone. And if, if, if this movie affected you, you've got to see Triangle. Triangle will do the same thing uh, for some of the same reasons. So, uh, yeah, uh, check us out on our, I, there's no way to segue out of something so like somber, but I'm going to do it. Damn it. I'm going to, I'm going to segue out of the somberness of this film into, uh, our social media because that's also somber. I just post memes on our Instagram. So, uh, check us out Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you like what you saw, hit that bell, subscribe to our channel. Uh, thanks for watching. We will see you next week. Uh, hopefully more in a more upbeat manner. Uh, if not, you will see us all doing one final cheer. If you see any of us all at the very end doing a cheers together and we drink it, it's going to be the final episode of this podcast. That's how we're going to end it in, in the future. Anyway, all right, well, I ended I ended this, this podcast in a very somber way. I wasn't trying to, but that's how we're going to do it. It's just beckoning me to end it in a somber way. Have a good night. Take care, guys, and we'll see you next week for our next podcast. Peace.